BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Hey, everybody. From KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. On today's show, before we turn the page on 2023, we're revisiting two of the interviews we did with key players in Sacramento who helped guide the successful passage of landmark legislation. Later on, we'll hear from the governor's chief of staff and Sacramento Mayor Daryl Steinberg about historic reforms on mental health. But first, 2023 was a year of historic accomplishments by and for organized labor, the so-called hot labor summer that culminated in better working conditions, pay protections, and pay for millions of people across the nation. And no one had a bigger role in setting that agenda in Sacramento than Tia Orr. She's executive director of SEIU. That's the largest union in California. SEIU is short for Service Employees International Union. And we began by asking her to give us a sense of who she represents. What kind of workers? Well, we represent 700,000 workers across the state of California and growing. Our workers range from county workers, state workers, janitors, um, across the board, child care workers who we recently organized into the union, um, county workers, as I stated, um, health care workers, of course, and we're working to bring fast food workers into the union as well. I mean, that's a big range of people with different interests, employers. Um, I'm wondering, you know, how you kind of came to this work. I know your mom was a state worker. Was politics in your blood as a kid? No, I think fighting for the underdog always was something that was, you know, in me as as my fire and, and motivation. Um, you know, look, I have my own story. I had my son at 19 years old. Okay. Pretty difficult having a kid at that young age. And I found myself ironically doing jobs similar to the jobs of the workers that I represent today. So ironic but powerful in its own right. Security officers. I was a security officer oh, wow. while going to college mm. with my young son who is now 26 years old and working in the legislative space himself. <laughs> I was a home care worker. We represent obviously 380,000 of our 700,000 members are home care workers. I found myself doing that job as a, a college worker as well. And so I, I have a deep connection to the work that they do and understand the struggles and trying to stay above water. Tell us a little bit about your hometown. Where did you grow up? What was high school, middle school like for you? Yes, yeah, Sacramento is where ah. I grew up, born and raised. I have hundreds of family members, a big, gigantic family with cousins everywhere. Went to Christian Brothers High School in Sacramento um, with a lot of family members who went to school with us. Um, what percentage of your family are union members, would you say? Oh, God. Um, a large portion of them yeah. because a lot of us are low-wage workers and state workers. And Sacramento, as you know, is a big you industry know, big town. area. Yeah. It's an industry <laughs> town for state workers. So I think back to my aunts and my uncles, my mom, you know, state workers, county workers across the board. 
You know, you are one of a line of recent sort of very powerful, politically savvy women of color who have come up in the labor ranks. But that was not always the case. I wonder, uh, you know, thinking about one of your predecessors, LaFonza Butler, who we've had on the show now, Senator Butler. Yes. (laughs) I mean, what difference does it make having somebody like yourself? um, You're black, you're Latina. You, as you say, grew up with this family watching these people. Like, how does that impact the way you do your work? Oh, I I think I lead and end with it, right? And I think if you think about Senator Butler and who she is and what I've learned from her, a woman that walks into the room that leads and ends with her values is is someone that I look up to and admire in that regard. But you're right, still to this day, there's not enough women of color that are leading in this space that can come with the stories that I just told you about my own life that can add that to the conversation on strategy and how to mobilize workers to be able to relate to them. I would say it's imperative for us to create a broader table where there's more people that look like us and Senator Butler and others so that we can have those conversations and get real work done. We'll talk more about the Senate race, but were you disappointed in that regard that she didn't run? You know, look, I I trust her immensely and she is a deeply thoughtful person. So when she decides to to do something or not to do something, I know that it was intentional and it was for a good reason. Um, And trust me, we have not seen the end of Senator Butler. She is a young (laughs) woman who has a lot of fire in her and I think has a passion for workers in our communities that's going to continue even after her 14 months serving as U.S. Senator. Yeah, we'll we'll all be watching what she decides to do next. I want to ask, after uh, Butler left SCIU um, and before you came in as the head, uh, there was a scandal, Alma Hernandez does former executive director was charged with tax fraud, embezzlement, perjury. Um, the, the charges were not actually related to work at SCIU. They were related to a, a previous campaign. But what was it like coming in on the heels of that? Did you have, you know, mending to do image wise or otherwise with the union? Yeah, of course. You always want to make sure that the members trust that the work that we're doing with their limited resources. Mm-hmm. Remember, we're representing janitors and home care workers who are giving us a portion of their, their small paycheck to be able to represent them. And so, of course, you want to assure them that their resources are protected. Um, but Alma Hernandez was a leader in this movement that did amazing things that I don't want to get taken away mm-hmm. from the conversations that you just mentioned. Um, her leadership inspired me. It continues to do that. And I think we had to do some instilling in our membership. So the the goal for us was just to bring everything back in, continue to project strength and show strength and assure our members again that their resources were being spent to advance their values and their principles. And um, we were going to stay on track to continue to do the work that we did at SEIU. I just want to say that SEIU, even with the victories we had this year, not th- these victories don't come from one person. Mm-hmm. Our failures don't come from one person. Our movement is about 700,000 workers in SEIU in particular that are our bosses and that guide us and lead us on strategy. And we wanted to make sure that we we continue to own that space and let them lead. Well, let's talk about some of those victories. You did have a big year. Um, Why do you think this session was so productive? Like you mentioned sort of the shoulders that you're building on, you know, but it does seem like this was a remarkably prolific year for the labor movement in California. Yeah. You know, I thought about this as I was driving over, you know, the lesson if I walk away from this legislative session to learn is never underestimate the power of workers that are united. 
And I think that we've seen across the nation, I think stemming from the pandemic, Mm -hmm. workers feeling unprotected, workers feeling unsafe, workers feeling and realizing how underpaid they are in comparison to the CEOs um, that are their employers every single day. That force and that collective action came together to demand the legislature across the nation, especially in California, to respond to their needs and try to influence some reshaping of their economic reality so they can provide for their families. So I give this year and the victories of this year to many years of investment, um, but workers who really stepped out uh, were resilient, I would say risky, in that regard to step on the front lines and make those demands. Aside from the unified workforce and workers uh, letting their voices be heard, what about some of the structural changes in Sacramento, like having a new speaker in Robert Rivas? I think that's a good question. I mean, look, none of these wins are possible if you don't have a legislature that shares the values of the workers who stand on the front lines. And so all of this work that we're doing starts with electing people that look and share the values of their communities. So Robert Rivas, of course, being one of them as speaker, but his caucus and the Democratic Party and making sure that we have people that are black and brown and LGBTQ plus that come from the communities and have stories like me. Mm-hmm. They can they can lend to their decisions on policymaking. We're going to have a big challenge in this coming election with a number of open seats to hold on to that legislative body that is similar and shares the values values of those workers. We see it as an opportunity to grow that base. Um, but I know we're going to have to fight with everything we have to continue that and grow it. So the governor, let's talk let's about talk. Gavin let's Newsom. Talk. <laughs> let's um, talk. It was a mixed bag for y'all this year. You know, he signed some very high profile bills, vetoed others, um, in- including one that would have paid striking workers after two weeks, another that would have offered workplace protections to domestic workers. How would you sum up kind of his record with labor this year and and your relationship with him? Look, I I think I can say unequivocally that the governor listens to workers. And I honestly believe that he shares the values of workers and what their needs are. Um, Like everything in the legislature, um, it takes a long time. And for example, if you think about fast food, we worked on that since 2012. It was a group of workers in New York that decided to walk out and demand $15 an hour that many folks, when they heard it, thought was just insanely mm-hmm. crazy. And 10 years later, now we have the passage of 1228, a council for these fast food workers in California in $20 an hour. Were we disappointed by those vetoes? Of course, right? Striking workers need attention. Domestic workers need to be valued. Um, but we have work to do. And the one thing that I trust about these workers, because I know them, I believe well, is they are resilient and they don't give up. So I imagine these things are going to be coming back. Back to the governor for a moment. Um, you know, there's a lot of speculation always when a governor signs or vetoes, but especially vetoes a bill that a Democratic legislature has sent to him. What's your take on why he vetoed some of the things he did? I mean, uh, there's a lot of speculation that he's looking ahead to 2028. Yeah. You know, look, I can't I wish I can get into his mind and dictate or predict what his next step is going to be. But look, he's a thoughtful, a thoughtful governor. Um, He has amazing staff Um, and it does require us. And I had to do this both with twenty five dollars for health care as well as fast food to roll up your sleeves and dig in and make some concessions sometimes and decide if it does any harm to the workforce. And look, we didn't get there this year on those two vehicles or three vehicles that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. But again, I hope and and, and am expecting those come back next year in conversations with the governor will continue to hopefully get us into a place where he can sign them. Is there a particular bill that you see as the biggest win? I mean, there were bills to raise pay in the fast food industry, as we mentioned, for health 
healthcare workers like janitors and security guards, even hospital gift shop workers to 25 an hour, increasing paid sick days. Like, is one of those personally closer to you or more hard fought or I don't know, just like a bigger win? You know, I you know I want to lean towards all of them are big Obviously, wins. I yeah. don't want to pick one over the other. I think when you're talking they're all about your babies. they're all my babies. When you're talking about fast food and healthcare, though, if you put those together, we're talking about over a million workers that are going to see substantial raises. I would couch them as one of the greatest blows to poverty in, in generations. So those two are, are ones that I would say stand out. On the fast food industry, this was part of a kind of more complicated deal to take a referendum off the ballot that would have rolled back protections. Um, We don't have to get into all of the nitty gritty, but I'm curious why you think the industry engaged. Look, I I think that the industry realizes just what I said to you, the resiliency of the workforce and that the battle and the fight wasn't going to stop. And so we came into the legislature this year with a multifaceted strategy, one to change the referendum process to Mm -hmm. be more fair to voters, another one to bring back joint liability, which is an issue we negotiated out of the original uh, bill of, of fast food. And the third one was to create the Industrial Welfare Commission, where regardless of what happened on the referendum, workers would have a voice. One of the bills that had been a priority of Lorena Gonzalez for many years yeah. uh, is to allow legislative staff to organize. And that got stalled uh, for many years. It got through to the governor. He signed it. What impact do you think that could have on the way things work up there? You know, look, I, I, I was a legislative staffer, and so I can speak to some of the benefits they don't get and the needs that they have as staff. I think you're going to create longevity in the workforce. I think you're going to have more committed workforce. It's a very young staff. People transition in and out a lot. Um, Does it change the power yeah, dynamics the, at all? or the politics. Yeah, yeah. I think it changes. I, you know, I, I think people are going to stay true to where their politics are, but it's going to create staff that have more knowledge, even with term limits and education and the history of what's happening, and hopefully a happier group of people that have power to sit at the the table and decide on their working conditions. It was an exciting win that Lorena Gonzalez has led for some time, and another one that took many years yeah. to get across the finish line, speaking to the, the vetoes that happened earlier this year. I think people underestimate that, how often these bills have been coming and coming. We've seen this around criminal justice as well. I want to ask you, kind of looking ahead to 2024, um, business interests are running a ballot measure that would essentially retroactively invalidate many f- taxes and fees that both local and state jurisdiction, you know, rely on. It would also make it way harder to increase revenues in the future. There's been this whole move by Democrats and SEIU to put another ballot measure on um, that would sort of change the Constitution so that this measure would need two thirds as well. Talk about just like the politics here. How big of a priority is this in 2024? Um, and what are what is the case you all will be making to the electorate? I mean, it is the priority. There is nothing more that we're focused on than the business round taper proposal and the threat that it proposes to all of our communities. You know, look, I, I think... How would you describe yeah, the threat? Yeah, it's, it's oh, sure, really complicated. I, can, I, can, I know, it is, right? <laughs> I can describe it to you. I mean, really, the intent of this is to really strap local government and state government and the executive branch from raising any revenue. And we're talking about revenue that speaks to homelessness that you guys talked about at the start of the show, that speaks about emergencies. If there's an earthquake or another pandemic, you know, these, uh, they're calling it the Taxpayer Protection Act. I would argue that it actually does the opposite. It doesn't protect constituents. It leaves us pretty vulnerable without the ability to create solutions for how to get out of a lot of the situations that we know all too well. Is that an opening, though? Because it strikes me that a local supervisor or city council member in a red county also wants to be able to pay for fire and trash 
cash and streets. Like, what conversations are you having maybe on the other side of the aisle about that? We're having conversations with everybody because I think everyone, as speaking to the Board of Supervisors, you mentioned on both sides of the aisle, can see some impact. And it's probably why you've seen the governor and the legislature file the petition with the Supreme Court trying to get this measure off of the ballot in November because of its threat. And I do think it speaks to folks across the aisle because it ties their hands on their ability to improve the conditions of their communities. That was Tia Orr, executive director of SEIU, talking with us back in October about labor's big year at the state capitol. All right, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we'll hear from two of the key players in this year's major reform of California's mental health care system. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? It's history, it's people, it's unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. You get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos. And today we're looking back at two of the interviews we did this past year, recapping legislative highlights at the state capitol. Homelessness, drug addiction, and untreated mental illness were a major focus at the state capitol this year. Two of the moving forces behind major reforms spoke to us in September as the legislative session was wrapping up. Dana Williamson has served governors in many capacities, and she's currently chief of staff to Governor Gavin Newsom. And Sacramento Mayor Daryl Steinberg, who's also the former president pro tem of the state Senate, they both joined us in September to talk about their personal passion for mental health care reform. And we began by asking Daryl Steinberg about a bill he authored some 20 years ago that taxes millionaires to help fund mental health treatment, and why he was pushing reforms to that bill so the state can use some of that money instead to provide housing for people suffering from mental illness. Back in 2004, I was still in the assembly, actually. Um, We had this idea, had this idea that we ought to go to the voters to uphold the promise that Governor Reagan and the legislature made back in the 1960s when they shut the state mental hospitals to fund a decent system of community mental health care. And of course, for many decades, that promise was unfulfilled. And so we authored and uh, put before the voters Proposition 63, and the voters said yes, 53% of the vote, a tax on, on millionaires. 
The money started at about $700 million. It's now grown to over $4 billion annually. Um, and it's one of the largest sources of public mental health funding. The original intent was to ensure that the money went to the people who were the sickest of the sick. It was really a, a homeless mental health initiative. That was the motivation. Over the course of 20 years, it has done a lot of good. And in fact, I would say with the counties who are sort of a, a player in all this because the money goes to them, they have spent the money well, in my opinion. The problem has been up until Gavin Newsom became governor, there was no executive leadership, truth be told, that said the state needs to set priorities here. If we want the money to be spent on the homeless mentally ill or people coming in and out of the criminal justice system with serious mental illnesses, then we have to say that. And so that's the essence of the reform here. And I could not be more pleased as the original author of the bill that the governor, Dana, who added a significant piece to this as well, which I'm sure she will talk about, um, that they have taken the mantle that Susan Eggman and the legislature are going forward and that this is going to pass, the voters will say yes again, I'm confident, and then we will have an improved Mental Behavioral Health Services Act in California. Well, as Scott mentioned, though, Dana, this is not just changing the way Prop 63 funds. Right. This is also a $6.3 billion bond mm -hmm. with a B. That's a lot of money um, to build treatment beds. Talk about why that's needed and why hasn't $4 billion a year been enough? I mean, what is what what is the problem you guys are trying to solve here? Well, if you if talking about specifically about the bond itself, one of the biggest problems, and you can ask anyone, I mean, Daryl's mayor now, right? And he sees this every day, is there aren't places for people to go. So you end up, folks end up in ERs, they end up in jail, they end up back on the streets. Um, and so this really was that piece that we really needed. Um, and, and it's different from what the old state hospitals were, you know, the sort of really institutionalized settings. These are going to be community-based facilities. And again, going back to the promises of Ronald Reagan, that was the whole idea, right? We're going to take people out of state facilities. They're going to go into their communities. They're going to get services, but they're just the as in capacity. And the mental health problem has gotten worse during this yeah. time. Yeah. And it's changed too. It's the nature of it has changed a little bit. But I'm wondering, you know, um, you mentioned Ronald Reagan, but mm -hmm. counties, you know, are using that money well. And some of that money is part, if this passes, if the voters pass it, uh, would get diverted to housing. And counties are concerned that, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars that they would have uh, for services are going to go away. How, how do you respond well, to that concern? Well, several ways. Number one, I go back to the original intent of the act, which was to house people and to provide the comprehensive services for people living on the streets with serious mental illness. So this gets back to the original intent. Secondly, the MHSA, as we call it, reform, and the bond is not in isolation. This is now the fifth or sixth year that the governor and the legislature have led on mental health. And they've provided huge number of resources, four-plus billion dollars for a youth mental health initiative, the, what's called Cal-AIM, the Medicaid reform, where now the health care money can be used for a form of wraparound services. And so there's more resources than ever before. And what this change now is a catalyst to actually create a system that is coherent and that provides something for everyone depending on what their needs are. That's the bed thing that Dana was talking about a moment ago. We need 
That's the biggest thing at, lo at the local level. We don't have places for people to go. And some people need board and care. Some people can live independently. Some people need, you know, a more secure facility. Well, this bond, together with the MHSA reform, is going to allow us to get a lot more of that. Can I ask, before we get too much further into the weeds of this, like, what... You both are very passionate about this. Is there personal experiences that have made you want to tackle this issue and take it on? I mean, we don't get you in here, Dana, as the chief of staff for every <laughs> issue. Um, I mean, I, listen, I think working on this, you don't, you, you don't talk to a single person that hasn't been touched by mental health issues, whether it, their own personal ones, family members, um, in their work. So I think you could say it's personal to most people people. Um, I think Daryl's been very open about his daughter and his own experiences. I had a particularly tough experience with my husband um, that I learned a lot from. I mean, I was, you know, working for Jay Brown at the time. And when the incident happened with him, I learned about all the holes in the system. And you're a well-resourced person, And I was right? well-resourced. I mean, I could call literally anyone. Daryl will tell you, I was on the phone with Daryl every day. Yeah. So, you know, and, I st and once I stepped back from when it happened and could look more broadly and, and go, okay, wait a minute, like, this is crazy. Um, you know, you don't, people didn't know who to call to get help. Mira, I don't know if you want to talk about your daughter, feel free to. But I'm also wondering, you are now the mayor and you were in the legislature passing bills and, you know, supporting or opposing things. And I'm wondering, you know, we asked Jerry Brown this question after he had been mayor of Oakland. How do you see what Sacramento does. When I say Sacramento, I mean the capital differently now that you're mayor. Well, first of all, you ask about my daughter. She's doing great in life, okay. um, which is a, you know, one of many examples that if we do the right things that uh, people can get better and yeah. live full and productive lives. The other thing personal to me, and I think it's an important point, is that I introduced my first mental health bills before my family was ever affected by this. People think it's the other way around, mm. that I was motivated because of mm. my own personal situation. It was the opposite. And it proves the point that this is about everybody, that everybody knows somebody, every family. And what's happened over 20 years in a good way, not that the stigma is completely busted or over, but, oh, my God, no one would introduce a mental health bill in the legislature yeah. in, in 2000. And now it is the issue of our time, combined with gubernatorial leadership like we've never had before. And all of a sudden, there is the chance to fulfill that promise from the 1960s. To answer your question, Scott, um, I guess the difference is the lawmaking role is to make the law to provide oversight, but then to move on to your next law. As a, a mayor, of course, you see the impact, not just of the law itself, but on whether or not it is implemented in the way it was originally intended. And that gets back to the Mental Health Services Act, Proposition 63. We believed that we were providing funding for the counties to get out into the streets in these encampments and to provide that wraparound model that was the basis for the initiative. And while, again, the counties have spent the money well, that population has not gotten nearly enough focus. So the governor says, and Senator Eggman says, more money for, uh, for housing for people who are unsheltered or at risk of losing their housing, more money for the wraparound service model that we know works, that's the right direction. But on the other hand, I mean, we've we've sort of spelled out that 
the mental illness crisis does go well beyond visible homelessness and people with very right. extreme problems. I'm just wondering, are we thinking enough about preventing people from getting to that point? Um, obviously, you guys have to walk and chew gum at the same time. But I think some critics would say this is only through the prism of homelessness, no. not through it's, you know preventing younger kids and everyone from it, falling go into ahead, that. Dana, Actually, uh, you know, a big component of the reforms will the original Prop 63 did include intervention for kids. Um, 20%. And that continues with this. Yes. Um, because you're absolutely right. It's like, get ahead of it. Um, talk about it. You know, mm -hmm. make it so that, you know, folks recognize when someone's struggling and what to do. And there's resources for that in this as well. So it's both. Um, and I think to the mayor's point, what we're trying to create is a system. And it's not just this package, but it is CalAIM. It is all of the other components to this where all of those services are um, combined and utilized. You know, disability rights advocates were very concerned this week when some language yeah. was stripped out that would have prevented using money from this uh, for involuntary confinement. Mm -hmm. And their idea, their notion was it was a bait and switch, last minute, not enough discussion about it. Thoughts? Can I take this one you first? You take this okay. one first, yes, of course. Um, listen, I, we we talked to a lot of counties, a lot of advocates, a lot of folks out there, I mean, that had lots of opinions and, and really based on their city or county or region, and it's different everywhere. But we got a lot of feedback about allowing locked beds. Um, and I, w I will say this, my husband would be dead right now if that was not available. So this isn't about, you know, confining people forever but sometimes in order for folks to get that immediate treatment and have to, um, they ha you know, they've got to be in a secure facility. If it had been unsecure in my case, he would have run and been gone. So I think you've got to kind of take it in perspective. I, uh, first of all, the Mental Health Services Act, um, we legislatively amended the law when I was in the legislature to allow the money to be used for services regardless of someone's legal status. So it shouldn't matter. I mean, somebody needs the services, they need the services. MHSA never paid for the custody part of it or the law enforcement part of it, and it still won't. Here's what I can assure people that the coin of the realm will always be voluntary services right. because that's what works best over time. And yet it is a continuum. And so there are people who, you know, often because of drugs, by the way, not just a mental illness that are so sick that they're unable to care for themselves. They are a danger to themselves. And so it is appropriate to use those tools. But as so long as the coin of the realm continues to be early intervention and voluntary services with involuntary as a last resort, I think that's the way the system should be because in the end, nobody should be living on the streets of California, period. And if we start from that perspective, then you do whatever it takes on either side to make sure they're not on the street. That was Sacramento Mayor Daryl Steinberg and Governor Newsom's Chief of Staff Dana Williamson. And earlier, we heard from union leader Tia Orr. That's it for this final edition of Political Breakdown for 2023. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. And we're excited to tell you that starting in January, we'll bring you daily episodes of Political Breakdown. Check your podcast feed for details. It's going to be a fun year, Scott. I can't wait. Our engineers are Christopher Beal and Catherine Monahan, And our producers are Guy Marzarati and Izzy Bloom. I'm Marisa Lagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. From all of us here at KQED, Happy New Year, everybody. 
Hi, I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.